So, after working in the tech industry for the past five years of my life, admittedly as a recruiter, there have been two words that have haunted me in my sleep. Because these two words have been the most popular words used when replying to me in, in my messages, in my emails, even in my calls. And those two words are remote working. Remote working is something that has been so popular within our industry for the past God knows how many years. But obviously this year with the whole COVID situation, which is apparently happening, remote working has now become a necessity rather than a choice or a nice to have. And in today's episode, I am joined by the one and only Jason Atlas. And together we're going to be discussing whether or not remote working is killing company culture. And this topic led us to discuss a few other interesting bits and pieces, a few risks which people who are so passionate about remote working might not have considered. And you know what? This is one of my favourite episodes that I've recorded to date. Admittedly, this is only episode number three, so I don't know how much you can take from that. But but anyway, welcome to my podcast, In Hot Waterfall. If you're new here, this podcast is all about discussing controversial and interesting topics within the tech industry with no filter, no ass kissing, and no weirdness. Sit back, relax, put your feet up, and enjoy. Today we're joined by Jason Atlas, who, to be blunt, is one of the key reasons I'm so grateful to have stumbled across this job almost five years ago. Outside of being the reason that I'm now in love with sushi, He's someone who's incredibly passionate about what he does and who's still so humble after achieving some extraordinary things across his working life. With a career that's going strong after almost 30 years, this introduction will do him no justice. Originally from the good old USA, Jason's career started with a degree in political science from Vassar College in New York, followed by a master's degree in computer science and public policy from the University of Washington. While doing his master's, Jason was headhunted by a small American company called Microsoft, to help them with a program which, in my opinion, is a huge reason for their success today. That program is, of course, MSN. After helping them build out the very first two versions of this wonderful program, Jason decided to move on to a new venture and was trusted with a $20 million budget, helping Bloomberg develop cutting-edge streaming technology, which turned out to be relatively successful, seeing as though his team made the business just shy of $400 million. Since those days, Jason was working as a CTO at a number of up-and-coming businesses across the States until he landed a gig in an unknown business at the time called AdBrain. Fast forward 18 months, and after scaling out an entire engineering team and function globally, this business was acquired. After conquering the US, Jason decided to move to the UK two years ago and has since worked for a business that uses data to legitimately save lives, but due to COVID, is now on the lookout for a new project to sink his teeth into. My first question for you, Jason, is how accurate was everything I've just said? And if it wasn't, I am so, so sorry. I was close enough, honestly. <laughs> After something like almost 30 years, you never really get the facts straight. I change them each time I tell them anyway. Well, was there anything which was just completely wrong or was it all roughly right? It was roughly right. Excellent. It was roughly right. Excellent. I'll take, I'll take that. Fair <laughs> enough, man. Well, um, well, this is episode number three of, of In Hot Waterfall, and um, we are going to start this episode like we do with every episode, and this is uh, the quickfire section, which, um, as the name suggests, 
quick fire questions just for everyone to get to know more about you. Let's get straight into it. Startups or corporates? Startups. Why? More passion um, and your sphere of influence can be considerably greater. You can also impact change. And generally speaking, uh, corporates are usually considerably more risk adverse and very little innovation is actually done at corporate. In fact, most corporations that are responsible for innovation usually acquire the company that's doing the innovation and then they get the credit for the innovation. See Google, see Apple. I think that's the best answer we've had so far, mate. Usually it's just like ownership, innovation, but nothing else out <laughs> now, now I hate big companies even more. Cool. <laughs> All right. um, this one I'm really interested in. So if you could only use one programming language for the rest of your life, what would it be? Natural language, because all programming languages are intrinsically flawed. And after having done this for 30 years, none of them that I was doing 30 years ago are relevant now. And in 30 years, none of them that we're using now will be relevant. <laughs> so why the hell would I tie myself to dead technology? Oh, dude, you, you are setting this podcast in, on such a, a high footing already. <laughs> I'm so fucking excited to record this. Cool. Uh, you, you've kind of made my next question a bit redundant then. Because um, the next question is going to be, if you could delete one programming language from existence, what would it be? But I'm guessing... Visual Basic. Visual Basic, okay. Pre.net. Visual Basic, in my mind, has done more to take computer science back. Com and most core, core Windows development, which was almost all, almost all product development for the 90s, was done in Visual Basic, was which is an intrinsically flawed process, including distributed software using DCOM and things like that. It just destroyed software forever, and it made everything sloppy. And quite frankly, that sloppiness has bled over to modern programming languages. Its tendrils are still there. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you because you're much more intelligent than I am. I completely agree with you because you sound passionate. Cool. Um, what's the app you spend the most time on? I mean, I use things for like I, I read a ton, okay. Kindle. YouTube, uh, Netflix, um, things along those lines. What do you watch on YouTube? Because the the weirdest answer I've had so far, which surprisingly a lot of people agreed with, was that um, he spent his free time looking at how cars were built. Are there any weird series that you keep up to date with? Oh my God, there are so many. (laughs) Um, I just discovered, in fact, actually, it could be the best produced show I've ever seen. It's about the Northwest Territories, and it's a fishing channel. But it's actually not a really about fishing as much as it is about these two dudes, uh, white blokes, who go out and they just hang out with these aboriginals for the most part, who, who take them around all these sacred lands and, and do this insane fishing. On, and it's all done in 4K. It's some of the most beautiful cinema, cinema I've ever seen wow. in my life. Incredible. And they're like each 30, 35 yeah. minutes long. They're amazing. Sweet. Sounds good. Yeah. Next question. Will technology kill off the yeah. need for recruiters? No, because I, I mean, it, it'll kill off the need for 80% of them, right? Because 80% of the work will eventually all just be automated. But the fact of the matter is, is that anything that requires a decision, not anything, I, I mean, yes, eventually all of the jobs that we think of will eventually no longer be what they are. So forever is just too long. But in the next 10 years, we're still going to need human relationship brokering. And that doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. That has to do with emotive and and the kind of weird idiosyncratic kind of funginess that makes us in, you know uniquely human. It's not about being and doing smarter things. Sometimes we need empathic types of connections. We still need to sound things off of each other and also to have the advice and guidance of an individual. Um, at least insofar as everything that I've seen in AI, we're not we're nowhere near that in 15, 20 years. 
Now, who knows? That could change, but I don't see it happening, and then at least in the near term. Well, hopefully not. Otherwise, I can't feed the uh, the wife and imaginary kids. Oh. Well, you know, you got to keep them imaginary. <laughs> in life. Amen, brother. Amen. Cool. Project that you're most proud of across your career? Windows Media Center version one, um, I would probably say. Um, um, and um, we got it done. And we actually shipped, is the actual only operating system Microsoft ever shipped on schedule. So is, is Windows Media Center, is that like Windows Media Player and stuff like that? Well, yes and no. It actually was a full version of the operating system. It actually had a different UI that it was supposed to be shown onto a television as opposed to a PC. It had the whole grid display that allowed you to attenuate and tune to different channels. It allowed for time shifting on the operating system. It, it did an enormous, it basically made it into like a TiVo. Um, while at the same time it enhanced, like it also had the photo display capabilities. All of the things that we now take for yeah. granted were built intrinsically into the native capabilities of the operating system for the very first time. And it built the uh, a whole concept of instead of doing electronic programming guides over the television using something called the vertical blank interface, which was the TV signal, it did it over an IP network, which is essentially what allows for everything to do what it does now. I would be quite proud of that as well, mate. Yeah, we licensed it for about $7 billion. <laughs> Fucking hell, mate. I'm not exaggerating, sadly. Well, what was your biggest fuck up? Oh God. Um, I mean, I've had a few, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to think of which one it's more of like, Oh God, which one do I want to talk about? Uh, you do this long enough. You have a lot of them. I mean, honestly, the majority of ones that I have had, I would say probably the single largest fuck up that I had was leaving too early. Um, and I did that in a number of times. But in the, what I mean in this particular case was literally probably leaving $100 million on the table by having left Microsoft when I did in, uh, to, to join a startup in 99. So literally, I could have probably, you know, I would have had a, a lot of money if I had not stayed left. Man, that, that's, I don't mean to agree with you, but that sounds quite depressing. That's depressing. <laughs> I have lots of career ones, too, if you want those. I could talk about, you know, having, you know, done really stupid things and shipped really dumb products before <laughs> and also thinking that twitter was a total fucking mistake <laughs> we all are dumb yeah, sometimes. True. me more than, than most admittedly but but in terms of fuck ups i mean you could do a lot worse so so i wouldn't beat yourself up too much about it and i guess it leads nicely into the next question so what would be the one piece of advice you'd give yourself at the very start of your career apart from don't leave microsoft you fucking fool don't leave microsoft in the late <laughs> 90s uh <laughs> Uh, no, no. Uh, the biggest piece of career advice that I would honestly give myself is to take five seconds before you make a fucking decision. Honestly, it, it's really, and it's not just about making a decision. It's about almost anything in life. Take the time to think, to breathe. And also, it's also to appreciate what you have when you have it. It's just all the types of things. It's just taking that step back in time. Um, we all, especially, you know, in these types of industries and with the time and pressures that are going on now move way too goddamn fast. We don't learn from our failures as well as we should, because we don't take the time to think about them and we don't revel in our successes like we should. And we don't think as clearly as we did. And it all has to do with not taking large amounts of time, but taking enough time just to take the step back and not, and to not, and to appreciate things for as they are. Sorry, I have a cat really interested in life. <laughs> Curse you, kitty. Right, buddy.
That's a very good piece of advice, mate. <clears throat> I think we, we can all learn from that because I am impulsive as hell. Like I'll usually make decisions rapidly because I think that time is, is incredibly finite and it needs to be done instantaneously. And most of the time that bites me in the arse. So, so that makes perfect sense. And uh, the final question yeah. I've got for you, and, and this one I spent a long time thinking about which question I wanted to add because there was some feedback that we should add more to this section. So I've decided to go with this one. It's a cliche one, but, but I mm -hmm. don't care. I'm committed to it nonetheless. So you're hosting a dinner party and you can only invite three people from history. Who would you choose and why? Three people from history. Who would I choose well, and why? It can be anyone you want, but can also be from history, aka people that are dead. Yeah, I figured they would hopefully be dead if they're they really know shit we don't know um honestly it there's there's so many i mean some names that come to mind are bodhisattva uh dao and then somebody like lucretius just because i think the dynamics would be really friggin weird I could also, you could also add somebody like Pythagoras to that because he was completely insane. Mm -hmm. Just somebody that, or, you know, uh, her, you know, uh, somebody that just two deeply intellectual people and one really smart and crazy person, I think would make for a really fun time. So you wouldn't have any of the Kardashians? Uh, no, no, I, I might pass on 12. Uh, I, I want people who are at least interesting. <laughs> I want, I want interesting, right? And so, you know, I want, and, and I, and I don't want, uh, yeah, I don't think I need that in my life at any time. Yeah, be a lot of stress, mate. A lot of stress. Unnecessary. Just boring, honestly. Well, well, that's part one done. That was getting to know Jason Atlas. I, f I feel like we could like clip all of this and just put it on, on like a dating <laughs> startup of some sort and just send it out to the world and just try and find eligible bachelorettes for you. But anyway. Oh, there's my goal in life. <laughs> I, I, I want to go back on Tinder. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't miss it. I don't miss it. But anyway, let's go straight into the topic. So today's topic is yeah, is something excellent. which um, we put a lot of thought into, and more specifically, how how to even word the title because this is such a broad topic, and we can go so many directions with this. And ultimately, it revolves around whether or not remote working is is killing company culture. And a better way of, of putting this is that you know remote working is is grown so quickly it's about whether or not we are ready for it and some of the potential risks of embracing it too early but i'd like to give everyone listening a, a bit of background and then go straight into the topic and there's gonna be a lot of numbers here so, so guys you, you need to, to buckle up and, and get ready so uh all this research has, has been conducted by um a study which was by two people called Felsted and Roisch. I think that's, I'm pronouncing it right. I don't know. Sorry, Roisch, if you're listening. The study was called Home Working in the UK Before and During the 2020 Lockdown. Um, working from home was on a slow and gradual rise before the lockdown. So in 2019, 4.7% of people in the UK reported that they mainly worked from home. And by February 2020, an additional 1% of the population had switched to remote life. However, as expected, it rose dramatically when lockdown kicked in towards the end of March. And by April 2020, the percentage of people working from home had risen to 43.1%. And although this isn't a huge shock, what's more surprising are the numbers post-lockdown. In June 2020, 36.5% of the population remained solely working from home. This podcast isn't to discuss whether or not people's productivity is affected at home, because to be blunt, those studies have already been done. For those curious, 41% of home workers reported that they were able to get as much work done in June 2020 as they were six months earlier, and 29% said that they got more done. 
for those of you strong at maths, that leaves just over 30% of the entire UK workforce saying that they were less productive, which I personally think is an absolutely incredible statistic, considering the amount of industries and skill sets which these numbers apply to. And according to the study, 88.2% of employees who worked at home during the lockdown would like to continue working from home in some capacity, with 48% wanting to work at home all of the time. Uh, the first question I've got for you, mate, because I know that I've just scrambled your brain with stat after stat after stat, is are you surprised by by the final statistic, which is that just under 50% of the population want to continue working from home all of the time? I was personally surprised because maybe it's just me being a, a needy little bastard, but I, I loved working from the office. I hate the commute time, but that can be resolved by like more flexible hours. So I don't have to commute during rush hour, for example. So that's, you know, something which, which can be adjusted. Whereas, you know, now half of, of people are saying, look, I want to be at home all of the time. That seems like a huge number to me. And, and yeah, I, I, I don't know. Am I alone in that surprise? I think that part of it is that a lot of people, what I would be interested in is I would like to see that study over time. So what's the number in the first month? I'll guarantee you was 15 points higher that all these people, I want to just do this forever. Over the course of time, that number is going down because, and in fact, I know that for sure. I just don't have the numbers in front of me. I mean, we should probably (laughs) find that after, but it would be interesting if there's any studies over time whereby, you know, because I believe if we ask this again and in four more months when people are still enforced, I'll guarantee that number's even lower. So there, you know, but I do think there will be a very significant minority of people that will continue to want to do it. And I think what's going to be interesting for a lot, especially within the technology sphere, is the majority of the people in every company that are going to want to work from home are going to be in a lot oftentimes cases your highest paid employees, which are your engineers. Yeah. Um, and you know, you know, in a lot of technology companies, that's your majority of your budget, right? As well as a large percentage of your headcount. So what you're gonna have is, you know, sales, marketing, uh, back office, finance, a lot of those roles will still want to kind of yeah. be in the office. You know, I'm 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 generalizing, but that percentages you will see higher on the engineering side. It will be lower in data science and things along those lines. Um, it's going to make for very interesting cultural issues, which is kind yeah. of what we're going into sure. here. And I guess the what you've touched on briefly there is is the the change over time, which which we'll naturally see. And I think from from my perspective, it's because people are enjoying a freedom that they've not had before and that excitement will, will pass but why do you think that remote working has become so popular among people is is it purely because they've not had access to it before or do you think there are other factors at play there are other factors i think you know let's be honest i think a lot of people who are tied or a, a lot of the work of being an engineer and a data science requires quiet it requires you being in your own head it requires you basically with large amounts of focal concentration. I don't know. And also what happens is when you're in the office, meetings happen, right? And so when people are with each other, that happens less frequently. Well, I will argue that happens less frequently. I actually believe that people are probably having more planned times on their calendars now than they did before. Um, 
but nonetheless, the illusion of the freedom is still there and your owning of your own world is still there. Your ability to isolate and focus is much higher there. Um, and I, there are massive benefits for a, a lot of fundamental roles to be able to be able to work from home. Also, like it takes me 45 minutes to each way to get to down central London. That's an hour and a half of my day that I am losing from being able to work. So, you know, there's a large percentage of, of, of actual and, 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 uh, you know, honestly, you know, just psychological mm -hmm. benefits that you gain. So I do think there's significant value to it in a lot of ways. And I don't, you know, and to a lot of roles, they don't need to be in the office every day. There's zero value to it. There, there are some people which are, are going to, to probably want to kill me for this next question, but I've got to ask it because when, when I speak to people, um, or, or when I spoke to people before the whole Corona thing, which has apparently popped up, people were excited about working remotely for a number of different reasons, but they usually revolved around, you know, the flexibility to work from wherever they wanted. So like cheaper areas than London, so they weren't spending a fortune on rent, for example. And, and exactly what you said about yep. being able to spend more time doing their job because they're not spending it, you know, on a train for two hours a day. The question I've got though is, do you think people working from home should be paid less? Because, with the flexibility to work in cheaper areas, so from a cost of living perspective, and you know, saving money on, on not buying lunch in the office and saving money on, you know, the commute itself. I think there might be an argument for it, but but what did your, your perspective on it before anyone sent death threats? I'll, I'll give you the counter argument. I think they should be paid just as much, if not more, you're saving on office <laughs> space. Reciprocally back to your company, right? I'm not charging you for a desk, I'm not charging you for anything else. You know, you don't have to rent a physical space for me. Any of those different types of things. Now, here's where it gets funky. What about people who are living in totally different geographies? Hmm. Right? So should I pay the same wage to a person living in London as I am paying to somebody since I'm now allowing for full remote work in Portugal, where the costs of living are radically different? Right? Um, or things along those lines, where exactly does the line draw? And I think to my perspective, it's, can you get back to this office or are we going full remote? And if there's full remote, I think then, yes, I do think we need to reassess salary because I think then you're starting to get towards a breakdown of the contract of employment in terms of what makes an employee versus what makes a contractor. Um, but I think that's to, and that's what the issue with the, with COVID has largely done. The world was moving towards remote work, but it wasn't right about to flip the switch. It wasn't a Boolean type of a thing. It was a migratory process. We've gone Boolean now, and now people don't want to go back, but the decisions, the infrastructure, the capabilities of the companies and everything else to be able to manage it hasn't really gone along with it. So we haven't really made the right decisions because we don't really know what's the right way to do this now. What's the most efficacious way of making this happen? What are we losing? What do companies lose by doing this? And what do employees lose by not being physically together in the same place? There's a lot. And, you know, we, we tend to, as employees, focus on the benefits of quality of life, which I think has improved, which 
don't get me wrong, is massive, but it is in all ways your quality of life improving by never seeing colleagues, by not having any social interaction with these people, by not building up trust relationships, by not being able to do knowledge sharing. I mean, does quality of life extend to the quality of a business? Because I do think in the end, businesses will suffer by their ability to make smart decisions, by being able to do course corrections, by being able to adjust to new and evolving market conditions if you can't physically be together to be able to make collective decisions. There's a lot more to collective intelligence than one individual on a phone with another it's, individual. It's also worth noting that I also find that people tend to be more toxic when it when people are working remotely in the sense if I'm pissed off at you and my colleagues listening will completely understand what I'm about to say because they know that I do it, I, I won't respond to your Slack. I, I won't. Like, if you've annoyed me, I will put my feet up for a bit. I'll calm myself down. You know, maybe myself a, 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 I don't know, a cheeky gin and tonic for lunch. Who knows? And if someone says something in, for example, like a, a shared group, like, oh, you know, what do you think about X policy? And you think the policy is stupid. But you can't be bothered to argue, so you just ignore it and you respond when you absolutely have to. Again, I'm not saying I do all these things, but I do a few of them. So how much do you think a company, a company suffers from that perspective? Because naturally, it's, it's the same as when we're on social media, where you tend to be more like, passive-aggressive and rude when people aren't actually in front of you. Whereas if someone comes up to the office and says, oh, hey, what do you think of this policy? You have to give an answer there and then and you wouldn't usually do it by putting your two fingers up you would usually be quite diplomatic and say okay there are strengths and weaknesses on, on whatever else but but you get where i'm coming from do you, do you think that toxicity is, is a factor to consider oh 100 look we're mammals we're, we're humans beings are incredibly arrogant right but do you ever see animals when they see each other again they sniff each other's butts to re-establish connections right well when we see each other physically we're doing my and large the same thing that's re-establishing trust bonds and other types of bonds that we all have. I mean, it's psychological, sociological, it's physiological, right? This is actually part of what makes us work better together because you build that trust bond with people. When you are, look at social media and internet, as you say, right? I mean, people, when they're anonymous or they're not in front of each other, treat each other very badly. It's very easy to fire and forget when you don't see the damage that you're doing and you're not actually responsible and you don't really physically are and you're not physically being presented with the impacts of what you're actually doing. So yeah, 100%. And also in addition, how like are, are you likely to trust somebody that you've never met? And will you ever build the level of trust with somebody that you have never met before? No, you just won't. I have, you know, I, I there are people that I have, you know, I might have pen pals, but push comes to shove, the people that mean the most to me are the people that I have physically spent time with. And I think, you know, all these types of things have significant impact on the ways that we work together, that we communicate to, with each other. And there are things that are being lost. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for everyone being in an office five days. Lord, in fact, I'm definitively not advocating for that. But I do think that we all need to be very aware that this is not a one-sided coin. And that this isn't kind of, you know, this pathway to, you know, to, to, to all things great, right? There are significant, you know, you know, traps here. And there are significant things that companies and employees need to be aware of. I mean, one of the things that I've like talked about before is I now say I have a company, right? Now let's put, let's flip it around. We're talking about employees as an employer. Why do I need to pay you as an, as an engineer 
London wages for, you know, 50, 75,000 a year when I can get three people, no offense, that are just as good. Let's be perfectly honest. If I spend the time, I can find people just as good anywhere on the planet. It might take, you know, it, it's just, you just, it, there's nothing special about people here or anywhere else. You can find great people everywhere. What you need to be able to do is spend enough time, energy, and effort to make that happen. But if you're going to do that, fine. I now have now built out a place and now I just say, you now all need to work GMT hours mm -hmm. and pretend like you're in London. And I, and I hire a bunch of people who happen to speak really good English. Doesn't friggin' matter where they are. I spend one third their salary. If they're so no business anymore, what's the point? Doing that because from a commercial standpoint, like if they've got rid of, of their office to facilitate, you know, a remote culture and they're then reducing their costs of, of someone's salary or, or getting three people for the price of one, you would imagine that that business then becomes pretty fucking profitable and their overheads are significantly reduced. So, so why don't you think more businesses are doing that? It's hard. It requires somebody actually going to one of those countries and spending three or four months there hiring. There's nothing free. People aren't free, right? So you're going to need to make an investment in time, energy, and resource no matter what you do. But once you do it, then you can turn it over. Right. Um, and eventually what you're going to wind up happening is they're going to wind up being these outsource companies that focus more on employee like people as opposed to slop shop, chop, slop, chop, shop, stuff, stuff, yeah, type stuff. It just is going to change and evolve. But companies will absolutely. And, and smart ones absolutely will. But one of the things that's holding people back is the fear of the idea of outsourcing because they think that doing what I'm talking about is outsourcing. I'm not talking about outsourcing. I'm talking about hiring employees in another part of the world where they're much cheaper. But they are just as valued and, and maintained as well as anybody else. It's a very different type of a business model, but it's one that's reflective of where we're kind of going right now. My question is that we all need to be aware that is an option. When we as employees push employers then they need to understand they're going to push back. Yeah, Nothing is free. Why, why are you so hesitant about talking about outsourcing in the sense of, you know, I, I, for me personally, like from the outside, outsourcing looks like a much simpler option to hiring a remote team, for example, in different parts of the world. So let's, so to put it in layman's terms for people that don't know, so outsourcing is where you'll pay another business to do the work for you. The business will um and forgive me if i'm wrong here jason but they will pay their employees pretty low salaries and they'll charge you as a company pretty high fees but you'll get essentially a whole team for still a nominal price compared to you know having someone in the uk their full salary why don't you think that's more of a feasible option than hiring out an individual remote team well well there's a couple of ways to do outsourcing to be clear right that's the that's pure chop shop that very rarely works to be perfectly honest because you're getting really low grade talent, even for low grade areas, right? The best of the developers are never going to take jobs like that. So you're getting the worst people from low income areas that literally will leave your group from the near, from the first job they take. So you're, so you're going to be having so much churn. And that's why a lot of projects fail because they literally just think you could throw money on it and hire somebody else to do this for you. And you're going to get a solution. Nothing is free. And especially when you're dealing with people. So, to do outsourcing, that's one way. Another way to do it is you go and you partner with a couple of these companies. You put somebody, you, you know, they physically put somebody physically where you physically are and they work and you coordinate and they become a kind of a, a group. 
Another one is you literally build a department there. And these become contractors or employees of your company just in a physical third third location um, where they work from their homes in that location regardless. But you're paying the salaries of what that locale would be. So it can work on all those levels. And, and the difficulty, again, is because most outsource projects fail because most outsourcing companies think you can just throw money at it like you're talking about in the first instance. And most of those fail badly due to communication issues, due to low quality, due to churn, due to confusions and costs and all kinds of other things. But pro but if you do them correctly and well, you can find great talent in a lot of those places, but it does require time and effort. But I don't but the reason why is because it requires time and effort. And management oftentimes yeah. doesn't want to do it. I love it personally. I think I, you know, but a lot of people why, don't. Why more businesses aren't, aren't doing it? Again, from from my perspective, and I think that's also because of mm. um, this ring fenced concept, this this idealized concept of company culture. So I can almost feel people listening now talking about or thinking to themselves, okay, but if you hire lots of different people from different locations and different time zones and different cultures there's not going to be a company culture because so many people are, they're so different yes. that company culture for most people is like the ability to grab a drink with each other or have a laugh with each other or, or whatever else. So I guess the, the question I'm trying to ask is, is do you think remote working is killing a company culture? And this is the title which, which we agreed on, but now we've set the scene, it's become like this more all-encompassing concept with with way more ramifications than than I initially thought. But but what are your thoughts? I think if you had a fully remote workforce, you have no realistic company culture, right? You have a very minimal one. That's essentially everyone is working towards a shared objective, right? But by and large, the emotional impact of those types of things is significantly lowered. And that is a significant concern. Um, but, you know, the, the company contract has been broken since the 80s. You know, it used to be people would work 35, 40 years for the same company and retire. That's changed and gone away a long, long, long time ago. The reciprocal kind of loyalty between the employee and the employer, mm -hmm. sadly, is no longer what it used to be. Um, that being said, however, startups and, and growth companies cannot succeed without a strong culture. It is absolutely imperative to the success of any company that's trying to move mountains to have people do things that are above and beyond the call of duty. And the only way to do that is through the emotional connection of culture. Um, and the concern that I have is, is that if you try to do a startup where nobody knows each other, then why? Right. So, yeah, I do think that there is a significant. Now, when you say when I like and I've talked to you about this before, I don't think it's destroying it, but I think it's radically changing it because something else will come into its path, into its place. But I'm deeply concerned that it won't have any depth to it. It won't have any joy to it, because as much as we may or may not like it, we do get you. I hope some of us do get joy out of our jobs. We spend an enormous amount of time, energy, and effort doing it. It would suck if you freaking hated every day of your, every minute of your life. So, you know, if I, I, I oftentimes have made good friends at work. I have, you know, I, I have enjoyed kind of going out with friends after and going to the pub. I really enjoyed, you know, there are still people that I hang out with 25 years later. I, it would be sad if all of that went away. Also, the fact of the matter is, and this is one of the other ones is, who cares who you're working for if you're working 3,000 miles away and you've never met your company, you've never been to the office, and you've never met a colleague? Yeah. 
Who cares? Does it matter if you're working for Microsoft or Apple? No. At that point, it doesn't. Does it matter if you're working for startup A or startup B? I mean, it just becomes a very whitewashed experience in that regard. Very, very transactional. It works already becoming very transactional, but this is the fundamental difference that has existed yeah. largely between a contractor and an employee. In areas where you have health insurance, right in the US, the US uses health insurance as a delineator between a contractor and an employee. Here, there is no delineator. So the only delineators is almost to a large, is the pride in the employer and the other ancillary perks that you might get from that person. And I'd be, it would be a shame to have those go away and melt away. For a good company, bad companies, um, screw them. I can't help but be reminded of like a, a really key political debate when it comes to, to immigration. And I'm going to, you know, bring this back to, to my personal life. So um, I'm originally from a very small town in, in Somerset, um, which for those of you who don't know, southwest of England, very mm -hmm. rural. If you've only ever seen the film Hot Fuzz, not too far from there, in the middle of nowhere countryside. And when I was growing up, there was um, all this talk and animosity and hatred from the locals and the Polish community. So in my area, Polish people are despised and I, I don't understand it. it. It blows my mind still. But they're hated because um, they've taken, uh, supposedly, a lot of local jobs um, picking fruit. Again, it's a very rural area. There's a huge market for, for meat, farm, farmyards, that kind of stuff, right? And um, they all apparently came over here in their boats or whatever immigrants are supposedly coming on over, or coming over on nowadays. And they've been taking all of the, the, the fruit picking jobs. So it's very similar to the South Park episode where it's like they took our jobs. So like, well, they, they took our fruit picking jobs. Okay, why did they take them? Oh, because, you know, they charged a tenth of what we charge. Well, tough tits, like they're going to work better than you and they're going to work faster than you for, you know, a tenth of the cost. Now, um, if you fast forward, you know, 15 years and we're having this discussion, the the original hatred stemmed from the fact that the Polish people were moving to my area. Nowadays, what what we're ultimately saying is that people from, you know, Eastern Europe or India or, you know, South America, wherever they might be, they don't need to move anymore. One of the, the fundamental blockers of, you know, people undercutting your wage was locality and them actually being in a, as a, in a physical location. Now that's not an issue. So as a slight side note, do you think there's a, a risk of almost this um, like immigration style debate crossing over into the world of work based on whether or not you're working remotely from one location versus another location. Like, do you get where I'm going with that? I do, but and this goes into the fact that we haven't been able to make changes to the way that the world works. Taxes. And that's why you will never have this as a true long-term thing. Mm -hmm. England and every other country will never give up the people... Remember mm -hmm. what I talked about at the beginning about salaries. You've just lost Very that true. tax base if you now outsource all those jobs. For every one of those companies, for every one of those really high paying jobs, that would be disastrous Very to true. any developed nation's economy. The fact of the matter is what there's too much money involved here. And um, there's too many really well-educated people. And that's what I say. So there's going to be weird things that are going to have to happen. The other thing is, is that I don't really think that the impacts 
to people's mental health and what isolation are really doing to people. And that's why I'm saying those numbers are going to really change. If I want to put my prognosticating hat back on, I would in the end say there's probably 15% of people that are going to be diehard. I never really ever want to come into the office again. It's going to eventually settle around that number, maybe 20%. The rest of them are going to be like, yeah, I want to come in once or twice a month to every, you know, once a week or something along those lines and, and so on and so forth. And eventually the companies will eventually go, okay, we need you here two days a week. And we'll figure out what that factor is and we'll do all these things and we'll put to new, and then eventually there'll be a new kind of a, you know, there's going to be a new, you know, TFL pass. That's going to be a two day a week pass. And there's going to be all these other things that'll eventually start to accommodate these things. You'll start having shared offices. You'll start having a new economy that's going to come as a result of this, but that has to develop. And also, so what I think is going to happen is there's right now an overcorrection. But the overcorrection is also being enforced by a plague that we're literally, I don't know about you, but getting on the tube is zero appeal to me right now. So I might have an office to go to, but my interest in going into my, I love being in my office once I'm there with my people. But spending an hour on the underground watching all these people with their friggin' face masks around their chin as opposed to covering their actual faces that are sitting on the tube, I swear I'm wearing my mask, you know, and all this other crap. It's just not, it's not cool, right? So, That'll eventually go away. And then I start. I do think that you're going to start seeing people going, hey, wait, the shadows are lightning. I want to see my friends again. I want to kind of, you know, I want to, and it yeah. will start to kind of recorrect back again. Um, but I do think that what's going to be interesting are when is that 20% who is really violently wanting to stay working remotely forever. Um, and then, of course, that number, of, which is almost, by the way, that same 20% which never want to work remote. <laughs> and giving that voice but eventually i think it's going to lead to a healthy debate yeah but i think that healthy debate is probably there are six so months many away factors at play here and what i personally fear will happen is that like you say the, the infrastructure of, of this needs to to fundamentally change in terms of like having something like a tfl pass and having flexible office spaces and so on and so forth the the difficulty which you know i, I think is going to play a part here is will i think the more changes that come from you know tfl on office spaces etc will go up at the same time the employees demands to be more and more remote will drop and you'll see one go up and one go down so you have all of this infrastructure in place and employees based on what you said will no longer want to work remotely as much so that infrastructure will need to then come back down again and, and meet in the middle like it's going to be in my opinion a long game of cat and mouse between the two until there's that middle ground hit again, yes. which I can't see being for or happening for, for a fucking long time, man. No. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that this entire time it's going to be going on new innovations on both communications. I mean, what happens if you start developing holography, right? You know, and things along those lines, you can almost emulate a physical presence, Right. Or we get these types of like tools working much, much, much better. Right. Or whatever else. There's going to be all kinds of advancements that will also ground down some of the barriers between remote working as well. So, yeah, I agree with you. I uh, Look, society, it used to be that the, the, the amount of information used to double every thousand years. Then it moved yeah. to 100 years. It's now every four or five years we double the amount of global information and collective information, and that's going to keep increasing. So the rate of change 
is getting very, very, very hard to keep track with. And, you know, becoming kind of a, you know, somebody who has some type of like, you know, recognition about what might be coming anything beyond about two or three yeah. years is becoming, you know, dimmer and dimmer. It's very difficult. I wouldn't, I, I, I don't have a lot of, um, I have a lot of Let's sympathy the, for a city planner. You want to start your own business tomorrow. How would you avoid the problems which which we've gone through today? And admittedly, it's it's going to take a, a crystal ball and uh, a hell of a lot of finger crossing. But but what would your strategy be? Well, when you're starting a company, you hire the people who you 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 know that are going to be it, you want in the trenches with you. It's more of how you grow that company. So starting a company, I don't think changes at all right now. Um, because those are going to be, if the, if you're going and trying to form a team with a bunch of people who never want to be around you and are never willing to actually leave their homes, you probably are starting the company with the wrong person. Um, you know, people, you know, when you're starting a company, you do whatever the hell you need to in order to make it work. Um, in so far as growing a company, I think the best thing to do is have policies in place right now, put into place your office strategy, taking into account remote work. Because let's be honest, it's easier to flip a lease in three months or, you know, and, and keep shining recurring three to five month leases, six month leases. Because right now with COVID, I wouldn't sign anything longer than that. And then I would also uh, basically put into place, start, you know, some levels of structure, put in you know, reasons why people need to be in the office on some levels. So no one ever thinks I'm always never, I'm never going to have to come into work or I always have to come in. You need to basically transparently manage their expectations, tell people what the policies are, put all of those into place and continue to communicate as best as you can. And that's about all you can do right now. Because the fact of the matter is until COVID goes away, no policy and nothing that you do within your company matters. Because that can always, because yeah. the plague's just going to go fuck it up in, two, in in three weeks, right? If there's another outbreak, I don't care what policy you have in place if there's a lockdown and so on and so forth. So you need to basically react and respond, but plan for where and when you know and say, like, I personally, mine, mine would be, I need everybody who's at least willing to come into the office. If you're never willing to come into the office, then I'm either going to special case you because you have a ridiculously unique set of skills and that occasionally does happen in this world or, um, or, uh, you know, I'm hiring and, and, and I honestly, I'm just going to open that up for everybody. But my personal take was I'd like to have people come in at least once a week or, you know, and sometimes more, uh, would be my preference. I don't ever really need to think five days a week. Is it really ever going to be the norm for people ever again? And honestly, good. I like working from home every night. When I actually need to actually like get crap done, this is where I really need to get it done. But I'm a manager also, so I, you know, I need to physically be and in yeah, conversations definitely. and available and all those other Dude, things. Dude, that, well. that was really fucking interesting. And I hope that everyone listening enjoyed that as, as much as I did because there's a ton of shit which I'd never considered before. And now I'm worried for my job security. Thanks to your words, Jason. So, so thanks very much for scaring me. I'm, I'm about to <laughs> my CV. But in more positive news, um, we, we always finish this podcast in, in the same way. And that is on, on my favorite section, recruitment horror stories. And Jason, you've worked all over the world. You've scaled uh -huh. teams in multiple locations, multiple cities, in multiple continents. So you should have some fucking good stories for us. So just two questions for you. Number one, what is the worst experience that you have had as a candidate google 
I walked out of my interview in the middle of my interview. This was this was Google was still it was like you know 2008 maybe something like that. It was 2007, six? I can't even remember. I was interviewing for an engineering manager position, and the first interviewer I had was and remember I've been doing this at this time for 20 years, um, and the last and I had just basically come from places like Bloomberg and having done their CDN and their and, and all this stuff. And this person came up, I'm sorry, sorry, this is 2010. Now I remember this is 2010. I had just done the data, data platform for Microsoft, which is 18 petabytes of unduplicated data a day, 28 different machine learning algorithms, and every single Windows property on the planet was supported and had an API integration with it. The first interview I had was with a person who had literally just graduated college. And her first question to me was, what was my favorite website question. and why? And I was like, and I was like, okay, cool. I'll play along. And I was like, why are you asking? She's like, well, tell me like, what do you like about it? And I'm like, it literally was, and, and it was literally an intern interview. And I was like, okay, fine. First interview, whatever. Go to the second person. And the second person literally was the network, was the network, was, was a network, um, um, uh, a security expert. And he's like, well, I have to, you know, I was like, what do you want to talk about? It's like, well, we, why don't we have a fun conversation? What's it? It's like, is HTTP a layer four or a layer seven uh, protocol in OSI? And he's like, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you're, you're, you're a network guy, right? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, you don't know what OSI is? And he's like, no. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, is HTTP its own protocol or is it, or is it, is it built on TCP? What is it? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, all right, never mind. I'm like, you ask me a question. And he's and so he asked me whether or not I thought having <laughs> free food was a good perk. What did you answer? I said I need to leave. <laughs> okay. That was actually the third interview. The other one was just as bad. It, they were really bad. I mean, I was like, why am I here? I'm like, I don't understand. I'm like, I had just done this massive AI ecosystem. I'm at I'm at Google and I'm having people ask me about pixels on a page and about, and, and why I like free lunch. And this is my third interview. It wasn't like a hello, how you doing? I, I, Cause I can give you a thousand reasons why I love free food. It was really weird. It was really weird. I mean, they didn't ask a single question about anything that I had ever done. And I thought I had, the, I thought Google was the reason why you know, I had a good I reputation. I always start with this question in this section is because um, we've done quite a lot of studies on, on our side. So it's a few and far about um you know employer branding and essentially like when people don't get the job what happens next so like almost like the the unseen side of recruitment and 72 percent of people boycott products based on a bad interview process which is is mad absolutely mad and the fact you have really? such a specific story you know 10 years ago where you're like nah they really fucked me off like it's, it's mad how that affects people's psychology of having your time wasted like that makes you almost like dislike a brand because of the way that you were treated, which wasn't necessarily badly. It was more like they were just wasting your time that infuriated you. Like it's, it's crazy to me to see how, how much that's, I don't know, that still bothers you, but, but I completely understand. You also have to understand, remember, what do you think? Google yeah. in 2010 is the tech icon. It is geek love. It is like the epitome of everything. It is what we had all hold up to be this thing that was greater than everything else. 
And I was being given an opportunity to interview for an incredibly prestigious position at an incredibly prestigious company. <laughs> and I go in there and I'm, a, and I'm literally talking like, and I'm like, I'm a, it's a monkey interview. And I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? Oh, that's here? brilliant. It was very oh, I was weird. I'm really looking forward to asking that. And I've not been disappointed. Uh, okay. And the final question of today before you can set your wings <laughs> free and fly out into the wilderness what is the worst experience that you've had as a hiring manager? Uh, a recruiter came to me and gave me a candidate saying, you got to talk to this person. They're amazing. They're red hot. I don't even know why they're on the market. Take a look at that. They're one of the inventors of Java. And they were, by the way. This was for an engineering director position. They were a Disney executive that got arrested for trying to solicit sex with a 13-year-old on an IRC chat and was arrested and had no. just spent the last two years in jail. And that's why they were back on the market. I'm like, as a, oh yeah, the recruit, I'm like, you're really gonna give me this candidate? You're representing Mate. this person? Really? He sent you a pedo. That's mad. Yeah. I mean, I recognize I'm just trying to think, if, if, I'd seen, if I find a candidate and they've not been working for two years, the first question I would ask is, where the fuck have you been, right? Is it a sabbatical? Like, what, what's going on? Some, most of the time it's, it's medical related. The only justification I can give this guy is, as in the recruiter, is that maybe, you know, the dude lied, which obviously he's, he's a pedo. So lying is, is not even the worst thing he's done that week. So I think that's the only justification I can think of. But what was the second one you were going to say? The second well, one I, was I actually hired this guy. PhD mm -hmm. in data science from MIT. Um, 20 years of experience in engineering the last seven after he got his PhD. So he's, you know, real senior um, and uh, was an adjunct professor at University of North Carolina. Great credentials, great credentials. <laughs> wound up uh, going up to, at a company party, wound up going up to a 23 year old admin in the office, putting his arm around her and asking to have right. a threesome with her and her boyfriend. Then after that, tried to follow her around the office until eventually I had to escort him out with security. Um, that was I fun. Mean, I, I have I've attracted some weirdos in my time and I've worked with some, some creepy people, but it seems like you, you need to throw in an extra interview question into your process just to double check that they aren't a sex offender of some sort. You can't win a sociopath lying wins. Right. If, if there's usually what you wind up happening is, well, this person, I hired them and they wound up, they didn't actually know, they didn't actually want to work. They refused to do anything for three months. They yeah. literally did nothing. Right. You can't, people can lie, right? If you're a sociopath, you can lie. And it, but that person had all of those credentials. They interviewed, they did every tech question. They interviewed, they answered all the AI questions. They were really strong in mathematics. They had all of those capabilities. And they were a really yeah. nice person that's until crazy. eventually the bit flipped. Um, and that's the problem with sociopaths occasionally. But that was the worst employee interaction. Now, I've actually worked for companies where I've seen people beat shit, beat the crap out of each other, like at Microsoft in the 90s. I, think, that was, yeah, I wouldn't describe that as the that's worst different. experience. Because <laughs> as long as you're not involved in it, it's, it's not the end of the world. Because I think people argue and bicker and stuff all the time at work. And sometimes it can get physical. Not that I've personally seen it, but I've, I've heard plenty of instances. But... Oh God, it's so nice. It, the bro culture, is, it used to be really bad with the whole bro culture, like the Silicon Valley, West Coast, US bro culture bullshit of the 90s and 2000s. 
it's gotten a lot better, thank God, with at least even the limited amount of diversity that we have in the workforce has at least lessened that bullshit. Jason, you've been a fucking amazing guest. I've, I've, like I said earlier, I've I found this discussion so interesting. I've been hassling you for two months to, to record this with me, and you've not disappointed. Is there anything is, that you'd like to say to, to finish this off? Any shout-outs, anything like that? No, this is a pleasure. Um, I'm doing some work right now for a group called WageStream, a company called WageStream. Amazing group of people. Uh, some of the some of the nicest people that I've ever had the pleasure to work with and be associated with. Um, and they're doing great work um, and uh, allowing people to get access to their money when they you know when they need it uh, without actually having to pay ridiculous predatory fees. So it's nice being associated with a company that's actually doing really good things for people and is incredibly well run. As always, all feedback, constructive criticism is much appreciated. Just remember, this is still very early on in this series and there's still plenty to adjust and, and learn from. But until next time, guys, I've been Reese, and I don't know why I've just said that. Goodbye. <laughs>